Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday 7th of April and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, we speak with carbon accounting platform Persephone about the crucial net zero conundrum that is tackling your scope 3 emissions. Where do most emissions come from in the UK, for example? It simply comes from using and consuming energy. And a business is only going to be able to do so much to change their mix of energy if they don't know where it comes from. Right? So it all sort of comes back to data. The Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply give us their take on how businesses can make their supply chains more resilient in this era of the poly crisis. There has been that perfect storm of unpredictable events that's forced procurement and supply chain teams and, and the businesses they work for to build a sustainability in, into their supply chains. And we head to the Royal College of Art to explore how citizen science is helping to conserve and restore our oceans. What design students are incredibly good at is systems level thinking, complex problem solving, bringing together experts, knowledge from specialists through to community level. So they'll be able to connect people and technology is, is, is what designers are really good at. When you look at often the best solutions are very simple in the end, but getting to that simplicity requires a lot of thought. Plus, we'll be analysing the avalanche of green policy announcements made on the UK's so-called Green Day. We'll be reflecting on a huge business leadership month of our own sustainability content and events. And we'll be celebrating ED's 25th birthday, the only way we know how, with a bumper big fat sustainability quiz. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. Spring has finally sprung, the sun is shining and the ED team are, are blossoming here in the studio. Uh, although we're only half blossoming, I think, if that is such a thing, because we are once again only joined by just one half of the, the dynamic duo that is Matt Mason and Sarah George, because Matt is unfortunately not with us here in the studio again. Um, but by the power of Microsoft Teams, I'm delighted to say that the podcast has gone hybrid uh, this month and Matt's joining us virtually. You can see him here on our, our little screen, Matt. Hello, many listeners will be thinking you're kind of speaking to us while you're out on the front line, breaking news, gathering interviews. Perhaps you could tell us why exactly you're joining virtually today. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that pre-pandemic, if, if something like this happened and I, I couldn't be there, then we just wouldn't be recording the podcast because we'd, we'd be dialing up over a landline to get it done. Um, I am working from home because my car is off to the garage to get its tyre fixed and this was something I was warned about but not by the garage or in an MOT. My mother-in-law rang up uh, on a random Wednesday night a few weeks ago to say that a clairvoyant had told her that my tyres were going to go flat. And indeed, I have at least one, if not two, flat tyres in my car right now, which um, is bizarre. You never expect a phone call to say it for someone 
when your car is outside the window, you can see it to tell you you've got flat tyres, basically. So, yeah, it was an odd one. So, to be clear, like a sort of a clairvoyant, which I guess is like a, a fortune teller, told you that you were going to have flat tyres and then you've ended up with, with flat tyres. Yeah, I mean, they, they didn't tell me directly. They told my, my mother-in-law who went to go and see oh, a clairvoyant. And then, yeah, she, she rang me up. And I, I, I will say I, I kind of dismissed it out of hands. <laughs> you know, of all the things for a clairvoyant to tell you, you don't expect it to be about your car tyres. So... Lesson, lesson learned there. I maintain that this woman somehow found his address and went and put nails in his tyres, so maybe the garage can confirm that shortly. Yeah, I will, I will <laughs> ask for a kind of post-tyre autopsy on this one, because I, I have my suspicions too. Yeah, I thought you were meant to sort of go to them to get your fortunes told, or like nice significant happenings, not to kind of tell you you've got a flat tyre or pins need putting out this week, but there you go, okay. Um, fair excuse. Sarah, you're here, your tyres all meet the legal requirements, I assume. And you benefit from being in the office because you've seen this shiny packet beside us. I have, um, well, I'd say I've brought cookies in. I haven't brought cookies in. They were, um, no idea really where they came from. They were up in our CEO's office and she said we could take them. So boss's orders. Um, they are organic and vegan cookies. So uh, yeah, feel free to tuck into a treat. Matt, I'm sorry that you can't <laughs> be here to see this and to taste this. And I'm sorry to the listeners, you can probably hear the rustling. But uh, as we hand around the biscuits, Sarah, how are you doing this week after, well, this month after a bump per month of content? I mean, I'm very caffeinated. Um, it has been an amazing month for ED, but obviously a very full month. And we're going to get on to the fact that last week the government published the best part of 3,000 pages um, of announcements, consultations, um, statements, responses. Um, and that came on the same day as our awards. We were also hosting a roundtable in London with some CEOs and some senior sustainability professionals that day. Um, and then just throughout the month, Matt and I and the rest of the team have been delivering Business Leadership Month. Um, so loads of interviews mm. um, with, with people from the likes of Unilever, JP Morgan. I've got one from Uber that I'm still, still on. So it's, it's been a whirlwind, yeah. really. I feel like we said this a month ago when we talked about, I think, what we dubbed frantic February with all those announcements that came out. But that's moved into Mad March, as we've been calling it, because, yeah, we had the Business Leadership Month, with, which that included our, our flagship ED23 events at the start of the month, and then our sellout awards just last week, which was an incredible night. And on top of all that, we had that flurry of, of huge announcements uh, for the green economy. We had that mammoth assessment from the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which gave that final warning for governments to, to keep temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. And, and then came Green Day, or not Green Day, depending on which side of the fence you sit on. Um, this was the sort of raft of, I don't know if raft is the right word when it's this amount of documents. We need that sort of one up from raft, but it was a, a, a big swathe of climate and energy policy announcements released by the UK government in a, a single day. The package included 44 documents, as you say, running 2,840 pages, which made for a fun Thursday last week for you guys before the awards. I reckon a few listeners could do with a bit of a proceed version of exactly what has gone on the past week. I know you love a, a timed musical segment, Matt, so how are you feeling about giving us your own sort of Green Day rendition, rounding up those big policy announcements in, I guess, like 90 seconds? I mean, I like uh, a musical time segment when I'm not having to do it. I like, I like listening, um, but <laughs> I can give, it, give a, it a go, sure. Yeah, it's usually a Sarah job, this, but I thought considering you, you, you did the majority of that initial coverage, I thought this would sit with you. So 
I spent the best part of the morning shuffling through some royalty-free uh, Green Day alternatives for your backing music. I hope you like what I found. Extra points if you can weave in any actual Green Day song titles, by the way, into this roundup. So let me get my music at the ready. Okay, and go. Yep, so um, obviously it was the occasion was dubbed Energy Security Day officially, what the government's called it unofficially, it's Green Day and will be remembered as Green Day by such. It features an updated net zero strategy that was mandated uh, by the High Court to be delivered before the close of March 2023 in true government way and much like when I handled my dissertation, they left it to the last day. Um, and much like a Green Day concert, however, the government pulled out all the classic hits rather than creating anything noteworthy and new. The general consensus is that while the government has brought forward some uh, welcome measures, a great many hundreds of pages that basically just recap and rehash existing policies and commitments. And if nice guys finish last, then the energy security plan finished first on Green Day. It was the first of 14 plus documents that came out the door. Like I said, it largely reaffirms what we already knew. There were no new messages to expand on shore wind, for example, and no direct response to the US's and EU's big subsidy packages that we've seen in recent months. So you can wake me up when September ends, because that's when the government officially plans to issue the UK's own response to those packages. Uh, one promising thing to note is that the UK's net zero target is still breathing, uh, as the government did not, as some reports suggest they might, uh, approve new oil and gas fields, including uh, Equinor's controversial Rose Bank. Uh, one as well. Breathing, yes, but very much still on life support, and no amount of Novocaine will, will likely help. And the new uh, green finance strategy is less world-leading and more a boulevard of broken dreams, with very little fleshed out on this new green taxonomy. And it's not just dreams that were broken uh, during Green Day, but promises too. The net zero growth plan and the point-by-point -point response to the Skidmore review uh, shows that what the government states and does on climate action is a walk-in contradiction. Indeed, uh, one of the documents, which is almost 200 pages long, acknowledges that the UK is still not on track to deliver its future carbon budgets despite these new packages coming out. And indeed, very few of Skidmore's own recommendations have been taken on board. Uh, the most noteworthy ones that were were the target for the UK to host 70 gigawatts of solar by 2035, the new forum for industry regulations to collaborate on net zero, and the creation of Great British Nuclear. Uh, so if Green Day the band is known for American idiots, then last week's Green Day will be remembered for the conservative contradictions. Round of applause for Matt Mayer. Yeah. Well done. Only yeah. improvement would be if you sung the whole thing and did like an electric guitar solo. Yeah, maybe uh, electric air guitar. I was do doing it in, in the <laughs> I counted seven. seven yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're you, welcome. You've been editor now for well, like seven or eight years, or you've been on the brand for seven or eight years. That's probably the best task you've ever <laughs> completed there, Matt. That was brilliant. Oh, well, um, I'll add that. <laughs> so there we go, it's our very own American idiot that is Matt Mace, um, proving the contrary. Right, now, that was a very well-rounded summary of the past week or past month even. Now let's get on with the show because we have not one, not two, but three exclusive interviews to bring you on this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. I've done precisely none of them, so this is the point in the show when I start handing over the chairing reins to you, Sarah. Um, mm -hmm. So where are you taking us first? Okay, it feels like so long ago already, but I'm taking you back to ED23, our biggest face-to-face -face event of the year, um, which took place um, in central London on 1st and 2nd of March. And we're going to be diving into a topic where I'm pretty sure there was standing room only for a lot of sessions on this, um, and which we'll be running some online and in-person events on later in the year. And that is, of course, supply chains and their emissions, um, an ever-popular 
topic. Mm. Yes, so you uh, spoke with our ED23 premium content partner, Persephone, is that right? Yes. So, uh, yes, this is your chat with Persephone's CEO and co-founder, Kentaro Karamori. So here is that chat between Sarah and Kentaro from the sidelines of ED23 in full. Yes, it is a pleasure to be recording this section of the podcast live from ED23, our biggest face-to-face event of the year. Um, And I'm recording this session in between our speeches from Professor Emily Schuckberg and Nigel Topping and a net zero debate featuring Lord Deben and Chris Skidmore MP. So it's a really busy morning here for all things net zero. Um, And of course, reaching net zero will require organisations of all shapes, sizes and sectors to improve their emissions data quality and the way in which they communicate this data. Um, To put it simply, you can't reach net zero if you don't know your baseline and can't accurately track your progress. Um, So with that in mind, it's great to be joined by Kentaro Karamori, the CEO and co-founder of Persephone on site here, to dive into the state of play with emissions accounting and reporting in the private sector. So thank you so much for your time. How are you doing? this morning. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It's uh, really a pleasure and always fun to do it at a conference where the energy is always buzzing. Yeah, I don't know if you can pick it up, but we've got um, that song that goes celebrate good times, come on, going on in the background. So very high energy here this morning. Absolutely. Um, Great. So I guess for those who are listening who aren't familiar with Persephone, it'd be great to get a potted introduction and yeah, information on how that ties with your story. So what motivated you to, to set up this business? So we are the cool in the gang of, uh, of sustainability songs. It's a terrible joke, uh, but one of my favorite bands. Um, so we, we started the business really on the back of seeing the problem firsthand. We were working at a large energy firm in, in the U.S. We were publicly traded, and so we were seeing the pressures, of course, from environmental regulators like the EPA in the U.S., which is, which is our environmental protection agency. And we saw this incremental push from institutional investors asking for climate disclosures and this was 2017 and onward and at that time nobody knew what a climate disclosure was and so when we started the business our thesis was we would see the topic of carbon footprints and climate disclosures become a regulated topic as companies were going out especially in the public markets making claims about net zero or decarbonization Mm -hmm. and that really to us was akin to making investor claims and that of course is what regulators are now looking to protect investors and consumers from is making sure that these claims are substantiated. Yeah. I mean, so Persephone operates in the in the UK market, EU and the US, and I find it wild as someone that's based in the UK that in 2017 companies didn't know what climate disclosures were, because I know that here um, that regulation has maybe been a bit more mature, a bit, a bit quickly. So it'd be great to get your view on how regulation and legislation on transparency and compliance on emissions data is different in in, in these markets and maybe where that's going as as well. I know that it's very rapidly moving in all three of those markets at the moment. Yeah, I think there's an interesting, and then, by the way, I'm, I'm a German citizen, so I grew up in Europe. And mm-hmm. So I've seen the sustainability stories on both continents now. And, you know, in, in the EU and in UK, you have a much higher visibility level of dialogue and understanding of sustainability concepts in general. Interestingly, you know, it's it's viewed quite differently as it is in America or even in Japan, for example, which is another rapidly emerging market on the topic, where, you know, here, London and, and EU, sustainability has just been a, a constant for so long, culturally, for everyone, right? Mm. Then to your point, I think the genesis from the regulatory side is really the EU Commission's energy efficiency laws, 
which were some of the best and remain some of the best in the world. And interestingly, I think there's there's a, a base level of understanding in Europe and UK that's higher than in many parts of the world. However, I think there's also a risk of people misinterpreting having a base level to understanding all of the complexities that are coming from regulators on the topic of climate, which are extremely related to energy efficiency and sustainability, but also go much, much further. And so, you know, we still see, even in, in markets like London, where we have a great team, a really wide gap of understanding on the topic or a really high need for solutions, technology, people, knowledge, all of those at the same time. Yeah, we definitely see that and different businesses in any market will be at different stages of their journey here. I did want to touch on what you mentioned that here in Europe there's sort of a cultural um, policy baseline, if you will, um, regarding sustainability. But I think that from where we're looking, things are moving pretty quickly in the US. We saw the Inflation Reduction Act last year. Europe's now scrambling to come up with a counter to that. The UK is being asked to come up to a counter to both of that. So what does what does that mean for disclosures, do you think? I know that the, the focus is on subsidising really cool big technologies like hydrogen and electric cars but what what does that mean for yeah, disclosures and software yeah there's sort of a great irony around the passing of the ira or the inflation reduction act for us right really really i would say the landmark climate legislation globally period in that you know it, it we see behavior change in the u.s market so quickly on the back of ira because it has so many subsidies and incentives for companies to tap into that you know, to the conversation with the EU over the past you know, six months has really been, wow, this will make the EU less competitive in the green economy, which is, which is extremely ironic, right? Because on the one hand, we say the EU has a higher sophistication on the topic, mm-hmm. and now the EU is fighting for you know, survival of these industries in EU versus you know, being, being built and, and scaled in America. Um, I think that's that's exactly what we want, right? We want we want you know as a big proponent of market forces, we want these economies and these governments to be pushing each other to do more. That's how we ultimately accelerate this. The biggest challenge in the EU is always a a consensus based way of looking at legislation and policy, which we don't have in America. I always sort of joke in, in America, if you have a 51% majority, people are very happy to to in, to push that on the other 49% because that's just how our Congress works. In the EU, across the block, it's impossible to have 51% consensus on anything. You need to have majority consensus on these things. And so I think the, the competitive pressures that are created by some of these events are, are very, very positive market forces that will force the Commission and others to move faster. Got it. And I, I wanted to come back to more of the, the sort of communications side of things, if if you will. So we at ED, we've been looking at this increased finance, this increased competition, more disclosure regulations. Um, and amid all of that, a new movement to combat greenwashing. So in the UK, we've mainly seen this with like bans on adverts and things. But you mentioned that this is important in the financial space um, and therefore important to non-financial disclosures as those become um you know, more more prevalent and more companies report in in that way. So it'd be great to get your views on how this greenwashing clampdown ultimately comes back to yeah, good data. It's it, it just comes down to claims, right? So the, the whole premise of greenwashing is all about you know making a claim that is you know far too ambitious in the direction or at worst nefarious yeah. of what it's actually doing. Yeah, I've heard that two companies can make the same claim, but if one can back it up, it's not greenwashing. But if the other can't, 
it might be, right? Exactly. And, th and I, th I think there's a massive gap between, you know, greenwashing intent and then inadvertent greenwashing that sort of happens down the line. So I think there's many variations of it. And, you know, it, just a few years ago, the topic of greenwashing was sort of synonymous with corporate greenwashing. Mm. You know, BP was one of the most famous, you know, going on these big campaigns talking about not just BP, I should say it was Exxon and, and all these big oil and gas companies, you know, really aggressively pushing, just advertising things about green technologies that they're doing. But today, I think the greenwashing topic is getting much more sophisticated in that if you look at the regulatory side, you have the EU, you have the SEC, and even the state of California all pushing different rulings and even legislation in some case to require asset managers that are claiming green, sustainable, or climate funds to be have, you know, the data to back up the, the companies they're investing in, deploy capital into, or actually, agenda, you know, climate or sustainability agenda oriented like they claim to be. Which, that's the biggest threat that I see is, you know, the the definition of what is climate or energy transition or, or sustainability gets quite stretched. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a massive difference between you know companies that are building products and services designed to address climate change and solutions that happen to have a climate angle to them and I think mm. that's what people are trying to figure out. Yeah, I did see an advert this week to a fully sustainable fund and I was just like, what does that mean? Where do I even start? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, I mean, if you do a little bit of scratch and sniff, you'll find the data is, is quite weak at best. Mm -hmm. And obviously improving that data means that you can back up your claims. Yes. Got it. Um, and I just wanted to touch on one other thing that we're, we're seeing in terms of regulation on the horizon. And so we have a lot of sessions here at ED23 about the transition plan mandate um, here in in the UK. Essentially, the government wants to mandate certain large businesses and certain high emission sectors to not just have a net zero target in place, but to properly show how they're going to deliver that in the interim. They've got to finance it properly, as you say, if they're only putting a small percent of their finance towards it, is it a good um, transition plan? Um, so why is good data so important to good transition plan? And for people that aren't familiar with transition plans, aside from the numbers, what do you think a good plan should include or will be, be required to include by, by law? There's, a, there's, there's somewhat of a great irony about you know, a lot of conversation around transition plans when most people don't even know what their baseline is. Because transition by definition means you have to have a baseline that you're starting from and going to. And so, you know, it, it, it's very positive, but at the same time, I think it also creates more challenges for businesses when I think there's an immense need for the basics that need to occur first. What is your footprint? Where is it coming from? What do you do about it? And, you know, going to the where does it need to head is, is a positive signal, to be sure. But I do think there's some risk of, of that becoming very complex because when, when we talk about transition plans, we're talking about a very scientific concept to begin with, which is you know, getting to a net zero science-defined level of carbon emissions over time. And I don't think that companies are really equipped to understand how to do that in the first place. So it's one thing to tell companies, hey, you should go do this, but you know, when I look at when I look at you know coming back to the data conversation, wh where do most emissions come from in the UK, for example? It simply comes from using and consuming energy, and a business is only going to be able to do so much 
to change their mix of energy if they don't know where it comes from, right? So it all sort of comes back to data. Um, and so ultimately, you know, first understanding where your emissions coming from, then understanding what to do about it. Those are still two very different things. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big one. And, you know, I think we also need the government to address the really fundamental, you know, sort of baseline of this, which is it's great if you know where all of your emissions come from, but if you're on an island like the UK and the vast majority of your power production comes from fossil fuels and you know, there's not a lot of potential for new energy production, especially clean energy production, where does that leave a business? So certainly the transition discussion is positive, but I think it, the you know, process of transition discussion is, is equally as important. We often see that like transition planning can help people avoid investing in technologies that aren't ready, but it sounds like a lot of people are founding this on data that's not quite re ready, which sounds like just as much of a risk, to be honest. That's the challenge. It's, it's uh, almost every category is not quite ready, right? And so where do you start and how do you sequence that? That's what everyone's struggling with. Of course, but we have to start. We're running out of time. We have to start. And I was just at uh, Green Biz, which is a big conference in the U.S. last week, and you know, I said basically, we, we can sit here and debate endlessly, is the science ready, are the technologies ready, are the solutions ready? We get stuck as an industry oftentimes in analysis paralysis because we try to find the stuff that's ready or good. To your point, we just have to we just have to move. Great. Well, I think we are out of time for this part of the podcast, and that's a great note to end on. I think so, Kentaro. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that you and the Persephone team have a great time for the remainder of ED23. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you very much to Kentaro and to Persephone, our ED23 premium content partner. Right, now, usually at this point we would take a quick break, but I am liking the momentum, and I think, Sarah, the next interview kind of follows on neatly from the last. It does, so I've got a supply chain special for you, back-to-back, um, -back. and our next interview is with SIPS, the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply Chains, just again in recognition of the focus on this issue. Um, as part of the content we've been publishing in March, we also conducted and published our own survey of more than 200 sustainability and energy leaders sort of acting as what I'd call like a net zero snapshot, mm. really tracking their current opportunities, their current challenges um, and how they're working with the board and other departments in their business as well. Um, understandably, a lot of things have fallen down the priority list for the next 12 months. Um, but two things that are very much still priority are energy efficiency, as you'd imagine. Um, only 1% of people said that wasn't a priority hmm. at all. Be fascinated to know who that was. Um, and then on supply chains, 63% um, of people said it's either highly important or important to a business critical degree to engage with suppliers on sustainability, not only to cut scope three emissions and prepare for reporting, um, but to just build in resilience in the longer term, which is why I thought it'd be great to chat with, with SIPS. Mm. And you spoke with Chief Operating Officer David Taylor. So let's hear, listen to Sarah's chat with David Taylor now in full. Yes, a very good morning to you, David. Thank you very much for sparing the time to come on the podcast today. How, how are you doing? Good morning, Sarah. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you for, uh, thank you for the invitation. No, thank you for taking the time. I understand you've been doing a bit of international work fresh back from South Africa. That's right. Yeah, as you know, SIPS is a SIPS is the global supply chain organisation, and we have we have a we have a we have an office in South Africa and about um, eight thousand or so members down there as well. So really, just just meeting some of the team and understanding how we can support the business. 
Great. And we've got a lot of people listening who do probably know a little bit about SIPs, but it'd be great to have an introduction in a bit more depth and to hear about how you came to be COO um, for for SIPs. I understand that that was quite a recent appointment. Yes, it was. Yeah, I started here in January this year, actually. Um, so I was I was the deputy government chief commercial officer before that and also uh, uh, within within the cabinet office in central government. So went through a lot of the whole all of the central government kind of challenges that through the covid period. I was also the chief commercial officer in the home office before that. And before that, you know, 20 years in global supply chain management you know, for various various um, uh, uh, multinational corporations. So I um, I really wanted to just I was sort of looking for what next after 12 years in central government. Been a fantastic journey uh, with with the, with the team there. Uh, really, the, the the successive governments have been really serious about investing in 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 procurement and supply chain capability. I mean, the government spends 250 billion pounds, uh, which is <laughs> significant so doing it well and doing it properly and doing it doing it getting the best outcome for citizens was really important so being a part of that journey to build capability was was really um uh, uh very, very proud to have been a part of that so in, in terms of what next you know coming to sips as a as as, as the the global uh, membership body for procurement and supply chain um it's it's its core mission is to is is to is to lead and develop supply chains for for a better community and society uh, driving the ethical component of that and the sustainability component of that so really you know moving from central government with my private sector experience onto the sip sort of global platform to drive all of the, all of those sort of uh, values based uh, uh, um, outcomes for the for the profession and i think i'm sure we'll come on to talk about how the profession's really in the really in the spotlight at the moment so um being able to support the profession to 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 build capability and and deliver uh, against that mission was, was 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 what brought me to SIPS really. Great and it sounds like in that role and given your your past experience you do have a bit of a bird's eye view of yeah how how supply chain management is evolving and how practical it is to implement those ethical and sustainability um, credentials and as you say supply chains are really in the news. <laughs> Um, at the moment, whether it's to do with fertiliser supply chains from Russia, Ukraine or sunflower supply chains or just because we can't find peppers on the on the shelves or something um, more complicated in the news in relation to critical minerals. So I wanted to get your view on at the moment whether um, whether all of these issues are impacting the ability of businesses to engage with their suppliers on ethical and environmental issues because on the one hand we know that it's more important than ever and that without these these supply chains are easily disrupted. On the other hand there's practical issues with with doing that. So at a top level David what what are you seeing at the moment? I think that there's been an evolution. Clearly, the last you know number of big sort of black swan events over the past sort of two, three, four years, even that that were really quite unpredictable. COVID and 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 the war in Ukraine, some of the some of the scarce metal sort of shortages and so on, and and the disruptions, the the, the Panama Canal dis- uh, disruption, for example, caused unprecedented things. All of those things combined, you would have heard maybe there's a, there's, there's a view from industry that we're almost in a sort of perma crisis. There's a, there's all these different aspects aspects 
both you know either current or the legacy of and we're still feeling the legacy of of of, of all of those events we're in some of them still in in, in terms of the you know the, the the geopolitical dynamics and the war in Europe that's still going on. We're out of COVID, but we're still feeling some of the some of the impacts of that, and equally you know, the impact of Brexit for those trading, you know, with with the UK as well. So, so I think there has been that perfect storm of unpredictable events that's forced procurement and supply chain teams and and the businesses they work for. You know, this is a this is a unified response, but but clearly uh, being being able to respond to that, being agile, uh, being responsive, and 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 looking to build sustainability in, into their supply chains there's no question that both in, you know my experience what I've seen that, that there was a you know that the getting security of supply was absolutely critical does that mean that was that was done at all cost and that all other considerations were ignored no I think you know corporate responsibility prevailed but but clearly whether it's semiconductors or or or, or, or peppers as you said you know getting security of supply from from different sources around the world has been key and i and 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 trying to manage uh, we're managing inflation now which is another another one of the perfect storm of issues that that has arisen so you know controlling cost for businesses is really important um so yeah I, you could say there's been a primary focus on managing supply managing cost but i you know ever i don't think there's any evidence to say that that's at the expense of the other sort of esg sustainability kind of goals but clearly there's a tension there and i think it's been challenging for 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 professionals to manage through that obviously i'd take my hat off to anyone in the profession um at the moment i can only imagine what it must be like to be to be managing these supply chains but um I did want to mention something that SIPS has actually put a warning out that one ESG issue um, in which in some sectors the current mix of crises is pushing back progress might be human rights and modern slavery. So with the pandemic, site visits were harder to conduct, harder to monitor. Um, We've now got situations where people are, you know, looking for work, looking for extra income, um, migrating. So it'd be great to, to have you elaborate on on that really as much as it's nice to hear that the top line focus on ESG is is still there I saw that on the SIP site and was that raised a flag for me yeah so we've you know it's it's one of the core the core the core missions of SIPs actually to you know support the aims of, of of governments in the UK and around Europe and around the world to actually eradicate modern slavery from supply chains it is you know, it's it's it, persecuting slavery in pursuit of profit is 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 immoral and unethical, and it, it needs to be eradicated. So, so we we're SIPS's core mission is 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 around supporting and educating and training people to to actually manage that. And it and it, it's 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 often often described as the as the crime that that, that goes on in plain sight. Um, as we look at supply chains, we think of long offshore supply chains which has traditionally been the model that has been changing with all the crises that we've been going through not exclusively but but um, a recent a recent um a recent sip survey showed that actually 30 to 40 percent of businesses have actually managed about modern slavery within the uk for example uh, again it you know depends on certain sectors so i think uh, sips's role here is to really sort of train and educate uh, uh, organizations and teams and individuals about how they can spot this and how you can have um uh, constructive plans with targets and it's important that we have the targets it's not just about having a plan it's then executing on the plan and driving change um so i think We've uh, some of the we there was some media coverage this week on some of the some of the 
the the, uh, the press statement that SIPs put out about exactly that in terms of we're alarmed by the within the UK the the the, the fall off in 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 organisations that are in scope that have a certain turnover that's in scope they 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 aren't they are the the, the number of uh, um, reports to the to the government registry has 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 fallen by half. Now, does that mean they're not they're not looking at it? Uh, probably not, but it is concerning that the, that we want it's one it's one measure of or, or one demonstration of how organisations are, are keeping a focus on 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 tackling modern slavery. Um, and I think uh, to do that effectively, they need to have visibility of what's going on down their supply chains. They need to understand their supply chains. They need to have people trained and equipped to be able to manage that. So there's a lot of incredibly good work going on. Um, but I think it was just a, a, a call to arms that we need to we need to maintain a relentless focus on this. Otherwise, it may creep back in unseen in certain parts of, 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 of the supply chain. Of course, I mean, even how I frame that question, I skipped right over the fact that modern slavery obviously exists in the UK as well. And organisations have charted that most modern slaves in the UK are actually British citizens as well. Mm. So it's as, it's as you say, it happens in plain sight if people don't understand um, exactly why it happens. Um, and I wanted to to mention another human rights piece there. You mentioned that obviously we think of supply chains often as being long and offshore, but in some cases we are seeing this slowly changing. We're seeing in response to current crises, some businesses are trying to maybe shorten or streamline or consolidate their supply chains to get better visibility. And I wanted to get your view on whether that really is the more ethical and sustainable way of doing it. Um, how can we essentially do a just transition if we're changing the makeup of our our supply chains? Yeah, certainly. Sips, you know, from the surveys we've done and the members we talked to, and 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 some of the work we've done with 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 Deloitte's as well on sustainability in the supply chain, it does demonstrate that. And I and I don't think that the main driver is about it, it. It is about making it sustainable, and that's and there's there isn't there isn't a silver bullet for this, depending on 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 the sector you're in and the type of organisation you are. But certainly, we have seen people looking to increase resilience across the supply chain. And, you know, looking at sustainability as a part of that resilience. And I think if you've got sustainable supply chains, there's a view that they're also resilient. Um, so there's a number of strategies we've been seeing deployed, whether that's the historically we've had a lot of single sourcing, deep relationships, single sourced. You'd have seen Apple in the news recently about their their deep relationships in China and how do you how do they maybe diversify out of that, which is a huge challenge. Um, so we'll be watching that one with interest. But but equally in, in, in other sectors and industries, we've seen the move from single source to, to, to multiple sourcing, the move from sort of offshore to nearshore and with sort of geopolitical instability as well. You know, there's there's a concept of friendshoring now, you know, having having capacity or supply capability within a zone which which you're geopolitically friendly with, whatever that may mean. So that, you know, there's those there's a number of sort of strategies being developed and deployed and executed upon so that you know supply chains are shifting clearly during covid we saw a number of a number of suppliers go out of business unfortunately so inherently a lot of organizations also building new supply chains so i think with that there's an opportunity to build in really sort of credible and tangible sustainability goals esg goals and work with the supply base whether they're new or whether they've just been repositioned and i think to your, your question when you when you exit a relationship i think all firms and i've done this personally it's about exiting with respect so you, you know it's of course 
business relationships change but it's how you do that how you make the change and how you how you both exit and enter the new relationships is really important but i see it as an opportunity and i think most most firms i've, I've witnessed are doing the same about making to, to to build those partnerships with suppliers to to work on 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 the sustainability goals more more broadly and it's and it's a shared mission it's not them and us it's a it's driving collaboration quite deeply across a number of areas I mean, that's that's great to hear. And I, I know we've talked really broadly about ethical issues and about ESG and deep partnerships. And from what we're seeing here at ED, um, something that an increasing number of businesses are looking at deeper supplier partnerships with is on emissions um, and decarbonisation, a good way to improve resilience as you overcome um, as you prepare, sorry, for things like regulatory changes, physical risks, transition um, risks and unlock innovation opportunities. Um, but we know from looking at CDP's recent research that only four in 10 of companies reporting on climate using its platform are reporting supplier emissions. So you've mentioned that this is a good time to refresh um, partnerships, renew partnerships, look more deeply at ESG issues what can be done in that to increase the proportion of companies reporting and the quality of their reporting on on climate yeah that's that's a great question sarah i think um you know I, I do a lot of public speaking and i often get questions related to you know how do we how do we how do we get a grip on this and i think it's it is a real challenge and it uh, it was uh, organizations and academia and 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 commercial organizations are starting to offer solutions for some of this but but you know um 80 percent of, of a company's emissions is scope three down the down the supply chain or thereabouts so you can't possibly as an organization tackle your 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 net zero targets or your, your carbon emission targets without understanding what's going on down the supply chain and there's two real fundamental challenges with that practical challenges i mean a lot of the some of the broader environmental uh, uh areas have a sort of they struggle to have a, a really credible uh, sort of um uh, measurement process or, or or financial accounting process but i think carbon we've got sort of moved through that but then it's then how do you measure it and what's the baseline so first things understanding what's your starting point down down your supply chain and again a number of organizations are, are willing to help with that challenge um so uh, then the, the then the second aspect of that is really un- understanding quite deeply what your what your supply chain is uh you know what 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 is it beyond tier one how many tiers have you got what countries are they in how many suppliers are in multiple bits of your supply chain and so on so the 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 recent study we did with Deloitte's on supply chain resilience actually showed that you know only only 13 percent of organizations and we mapped we spoke to five or six hundred or so globally um uh, they only have you know only only 13 percent say they fully map their supply chain and uh, and more than a third have have no visibility beyond tier two so there's a, if you don't know who your suppliers are you can't possibly start to 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 baseline them and to start to measure them so so I think you know lots of organisations are grappling with this, and supply chain visibility is complex, and it, it it becomes a big data challenge very quickly. So you need to choose where you do it, which are your most you know either high risk supply chains from a modern slavery or or a broader you know ethical point of view, and also from carbon, you know identifying which 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 bits of your supply chains are, are, are most likely the highest contributors and starting there. But those are the two big challenges I'm seeing visibility down the supply chain and being able to set an effective baseline on 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 carbon 
Brilliant. Well, David, I could honestly pick your brain all day on any one of the topics that we've talked about, and I appreciate you for doing a very whistle-stop tour um, of ESG management in supply chains at this moment in time. But I, I'm aware we're near the end of our time, so I should probably let you get going. And, and thank you so much for coming on Sustainability Uncovered. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And uh, SIPS, SIPS genuinely looks forward to, to working with everybody to, to, to help support these, uh, these challenges. Okay, great stuff. Thank you to David and the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. Right now, it's finally biscuit time for me and Sarah because we're going to take a short break. Uh, Matt and the rest of you, please don't go anywhere because when we return in just 30 seconds time, we're going to be delivering up a fascinating chat about how we can use citizen science to protect the oceans. And we'll be closing off with a very special birthday quiz. See you in a sec. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I am joined here still in the studio by Sarah George and a half-empty packet of biscuits. Right, Matt, uh, are you still with us? I am indeed, yep. Still, still. Uh, I don't have biscuits. Uh, I don't actually have anything in the house, actually. I was like, I'll go get myself a snack, and there's, there's like, uh, miso sachet and ask about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll pull out my tiny violin for you, Matt. <laughs> it's a tiny, it's a tiny sachet. <laughs> uh, I believe this third and final interview of the show is one of yours, Matt. So, uh, what have you got for us? Yeah. So, um, I was fortunate enough to pop up to London uh, to go to the Royal College of Arts. They have basically been working on a series of grand challenges, um, looking at some of the big, well grand challenges, I can't really put it any differently, um, that are kind of facing society and the and the planet um, right now. And for um, the most recent one for, the, for this year, it was almost, it was all focused on uh, how they can engage with communities. Uh, and it's very much focused on marine sus- sustainability. Um, so I got to go uh, there, have a little look at this little competition they've been running and the winning entries that they've kind of put on display. And you'll, you'll hear in the chat more about those, so I don't need to necessarily go into detail with them um, now, but I will be um, speaking to the uh, college's head of program for innovation design and engineering who just talks us through why that was a, a challenge that they decided to focus on. Marine ecosystems are obviously vital to climate uh, combat the climate crisis and um, are also extremely fragile right now, but he goes into more about how they chose that, who they chose to partner with and what happens to some of these entries moving forward now. Mm, okay, yeah, fascinating. And this concept of, I think, citizen science that you end up talking about is a really interesting one in terms of its potential, I suppose, when it's used for our industry. So interested to hear about this one. Here is Matt's chat with Gareth Loudon, the Head of Programme for Innovation Design and Engineering at the Royal College of Art in full. So last month, the Royal College of Art announced the three winners of the RCA Grand Challenge. Uh, this year's challenge was all focused on engaging communities for generating marine sustainable economies. Uh, That was delivered in partnership with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution and students were tasked with exploring uh, 
the ways that design can leverage and stimulate uh, science-led practices with involvement from the public and citizens to essentially increase the health and productivity of the world's oceans, which, uh, as we know, are crucial in the wider efforts uh, to combat the climate crisis. Uh, and so I've come down uh, to the RCA's Battersea campus on uh, the opening day of a new exhibition, which is showcasing uh, the winning entries. And you will hear me discuss the winning uh, entries uh, around this chat, and you'll see a, a link to them on the uh, accompanying article for this. Uh, but I'm joined by Gareth uh, Lorden, who is the Head of Programme for Innovation Design Engineering at the RCA, and also led uh, the RCA's Grand Challenge uh, for this year. So Gareth, uh, thank you so much for welcoming me and Edie today. Perhaps we could start a little bit more about that Grand Challenge, and essentially what were uh, the entrance tasks we've tried to achieve? So this, yeah, the Grand Challenge is run by the whole of School of Design, which includes quite a few programmes, not just my own programme as, as you mentioned there. And we put them in interdisciplinary teams to tackle, as you described, that, that challenge in this case of um, having to engage with local communities, coastal communities around the UK, to see how they can play a part and, and co-design, in a way, the solutions that would help improve the, the health and, uh, and well-being of themselves and, and create that sort of marine sustainable uh, in, um, communities uh, around the UK. And I got a chance out in the kind of main foyer to look at um, the, the winning entries. So we had the sea seeds, sort of these kind of little seed bombs essentially that can mm -hmm. be dropped off by boats to, to increase seagrass population. There was Go Water, which is a kind of a wearable sensor um, for kind of water quality data, and uh, Pollen Wave, which is these kind of um, Atlantic salmon uh, biodegradable sensor systems to help monitor their. Uh, their habitats. Um, so a nice broad range yeah. of, of um, winning solutions and there was a lot more out there that I spent many, uh, I could spend many a, a minute looking at the videos and, and the interactive props that were set up. But um, I suppose what were made, um, the RCA decided that the grand challenge for this year should be focused on marine ecosystems. Where did that idea come from? Well it's actually part of a broader research piece of work that's happening around the oceans and uh, uh, the RCA is partnered with UNESCO in terms of the ocean decade uh, strategy. So we even last year we've been doing a lot of research around uh, ocean health and how we can support ocean health. Uh, and we did a grand challenge in that area last year, but this year it, the additional element is to look how the role of communities and how communities can play a part. So that was the, the extra part that we added this year, uh, and that's why we focused on UK coastal communities specifically. And as mentioned, um, the RNLI were involved, and it sounds like it's certainly for that kind of community citizen-led citizen -led aspect, they were crucial to that. Um, how, um, how did that kind of particular partnership develop? Why did you decide that actually the RNLI's involvement would be crucial to, to this? Well, we had had links and done work with RNLI before around um, water safety, and so we had some links into RNLI, so we used that sort of leverage to ask them if they'd be interested in getting involved in quite a big and big effort from their part as well in terms of this grand challenge. And we highlighted exactly as you say, we needed some uh, people and representatives who were connected to the community, understood these issues very well, and the RNI were the perfect uh, organization to do that, and they were very welcoming and put a lot of support and time with their staff and volunteers, staff in terms of all the planning and the logistics to get the project up and running and recruiting all the volunteers uh, but then the volunteers and staff themselves who were linked with each of the teams. We had 97 teams in total uh, all around the UK assigned to different um, locations with an RNLI volunteer or staff member in that location. 
so they could go out and connect with those volunteers, um, go and understand that space and spend time in that community uh, and understand the challenges and the needs of that particular community. Because we are, our also view was that context is very important. So what might be a solution? You mentioned seagrass, for example. That might work well in a particular location in the UK, but in another location that might not be the issue or, or the appropriate solution. So context, both geographically and socially, was something we were very interested in, in exploring around uh, this area. And it seems like a lot of the, uh, the challenges, uh, all of the entrants were very much focused on that data quality, kind of gaining that wider understanding of, of the water ecosystems and the quality in that sense. But in terms of um, now this challenge of the exhibition's on, what, what kind of happens next? How do you take these learnings and, uh, and apply them to, to what you're doing? Or, or how should they be applied in terms of actually starting to improve and protect marine ecosystems? I mean, uh, I guess we have a few broader agendas like, uh, from the RCA. One is that broader research strategy, which is going to be ongoing over multiple years. So we've also got a lot of research data from this project, which will feed into that. Um, we're encouraging some of the student groups to take that forward. And uh, for example, the CCs, we think has tremendous potential as a commercial solution. So that's definitely something I, we, we started that discussion with the team. I think they're very interested in, in developing that. And the, and the nice thing about RCA is a very uh, excellent ecosystem to support ideas from student projects to help taking them out. I know RNLI, for example, were very excited by that project and very keen to see that happen as well. So I think they'd be very supportive if we... But I, at the end of the day, it has to come down to the students whether they have that motivation and excitement to, to make that happen. And. Our audience is obviously predominantly uh, in-house sustainability professionals for, for businesses operating in the corporate world, but we are seeing much more examples of, of kind of cross-sector uh, cross collaboration, is not the right word, but with kind of businesses reaching out to academia, academia working mm. with NGOs. There's a kind of a, a real sense that a lot more stakeholders are getting involved in, in solutions that basically improve the environment. And in your kind of role and the RCA's position, how crucial is it that... that academics and students and, and design and innovation has a seat at the table around these discussions to try and solve, I mean, you call it a grand challenge, it's yeah. exactly that. How, it, how important is it? And I, I think it's, it's crucially important. I think it traditionally hasn't been seen as a key player on the table, but I think what design students are incredibly good at is um, systems level thinking and complex problem solving, uh, bringing together experts, knowledge, from specialists, perhaps some marine biologists or whatever, through to community level. So they'll be able to connect people and technology is, is, is what designers are really good at. And if we're going to create impact, that's crucial. Um, so no one specialist can solve all these problems on their own. So um, the grand challenge is sort of broadly also about that point as of how um, we can address these problems um, with this type of approach. So for example, um, before the students went out to do the project, we had a whole series of lectures throughout the autumn term from experts talking about key sort of technical issues or scientific challenges and problems. Um, so that helped in their sort of initial research to understand the technical challenges, but then connecting with the communities in the project was understanding those, those sort of real challenges on the ground and the real problems that the, the communities were facing. So, yeah, and, and I guess the other sort of link that you're mentioning is for us to play a role between um, people and organizations and universities. So, university also mentioned that accessing to data is a very big problem. 
So how can we, so one of the big motivations in this particular project was the idea of citizen science. So how can we engage the citizens and provide solutions so we can help get that data to feed back so the universities have more rich data to do the analysis and to get better insights of what the challenges are and what needs to be done. Great, and obviously this exhibition uh, is, is, is running, or, or I suppose by the time our audience has listened to it, may, um, has been running for about a month or so now. So um, what, in terms of you and the RCA, happens next? I mean, this grand challenge hasn't been solved, but obviously the, the, uh, the entrants are out there to showcase how it could potentially be solved. What, um, what are you going to be kind of uh, focusing on for the rest of the, the year? It feels weird to say we're already a quarter of the way through it. <laughs> Yeah, so I think two things in parallel. One is a broader research strategy, and we want to use this as, as answers, case studies to highlight more broadly internationally what can be done, and then see if we can you know, encourage that activity and that approach in other countries and, and other collaborations. So that's a research strategy work. But I think we'll also be talking with some of the, the students' groups and see if we can help them develop some of those ideas and get them out, because we think there's some great ideas there and get them out as a commercial, really, a solution that really Im impacts and makes a positive difference. Yeah, I'll certainly be on the lookout for some of those potential commercial mm -hmm. ones. Like I said, the, um, the, the seagrass bomb, we, we, we've written about seagrass quite a bit, and mm -hmm. I think our audience, even at a business level, are quite interested in the, in the real potential it has, not to obviously uh, dismiss the other ones, but that kind of captures a, a real sense of this could be transformative. So it'd be great to see how that turns out. I mean, I think that's an example for me that as a sort of a principle, if you want, I think where design works very well is that it's not only a, an, it was a research into materiality to create those, those, those balls, but also understanding at a system level, an ecosystem level, how this all needed to link together to make it successful from, from people's participation, from a business model of how that would be, could be sold and engaged with, the idea of using software to map that area so you can work out if you're participating as a, as a surfer or, or person on a boat that where is best to place it and so on and, and of course they'd, they'd identified the key problem that there's a motivation already to do this it wasn't that it wasn't a motivation but the mechanism to allow to do it wasn't a good one currently so their proposal and when you look at often the best solutions are very simple in the end but getting to that simplicity requires a lot of thought yeah no i i, I um, completely agree gareth on that and um I appreciate you taking the time to talk to, uh, to me, but like I said, this exhibition has just opened. I'm sure there's lots of people that um, want to see you uh, so you can talk through what you've essentially told us. But thank you so much for, for speaking to Edie today. My pleasure. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you to Gareth Loudon and the Royal College of Art. Right, now that is almost a wrap for this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, but for one final segment, because I always say at this point, no episode of Sustainability Uncovered is complete without a bit of fun and games here in the studio. I think it's about time we bring back this, uh, the Fury versus Joshua, I think is a personal way of putting it right now. Uh, that is Edie's big fat sustainability quiz between myself and Matt. Um, and not that it's been keeping me up at night, but I think it's 2-1 in the series to Matt. So. We're at a vital point now. Um, and Sarah, I think you've got a special one planned for us. I do. As it is Edie's 25th birthday this month, um, I was kind of expecting birthday cake rather than cookies, but we roll. Um, I have a quiz about um, key things that have happened in the past years of sustainability um, and climate action. Actually, surprisingly hard to find stuff from 24, 25 years ago. So mm. it falls within that time frame um, and I've got some numerical questions for you and then a bonus one in the event that it should go to a tie break. Okay well I'll use my age to my advantage here over Matt, I've got a bit of an edge. <laughs> okay and is it going to be a kind of closest wins or is it a, on the nose? I think this one you're going to have to buzz in 
Buzzing, okay. Okay, so do you want to practice a sort of bing or a buzz? Would right. maybe Matt, do you want to be bing? I'd rather be buzz. You can be buzz, yeah. Luke can be bing. I'm always bing. <laughs> um, question number one. When did the UK first pass its Climate Change Act? Bing. Luke. Oh, 2008. Yes, so we've got one point to Luke. Um, another time question. When were the international HE biodiversity targets agreed upon? Buzz. Matt? 2004? No, Luke, do you oh, want to try? 1994? No, it's 2010, so we've got <laughs> one to Luke and then nil from that one. Okay. Oh, I was closest there. I thought I was going to get half a point. Half a point, indeed. Yeah, maybe half a point for being close. Half a point, okay. Um, one versus a half, then. Um, and... Okay, this one can be for the other half then, Matt. How many of those targets were delivered? There were 20 of them, for a hint. Buzz, zero. Yeah. Mm. So I'm going to round that up to one okay. point. One all then. Um, and we're heading, heading forward in time. I shouldn't have said that, that's a clue. Okay. Um, Wait, when where were we just now? 2000 and <laughs> 1994. <laughs> 2010, okay. okay. Um, right, so the next one is, when did the UK identify its first coastal community deemed to be at high risk of flooding due to climate change and start moving people out? Buzz. Oh. oh. 2012. Okay, I'll say 2016. Oh, it's 2014, so I can't give anyone a point because it's literally oh, no. bang in the middle. <laughs> give us both a point. Or I could give you both a point, yeah, right. <laughs> but so then you'd be at the same... You'd be neck and neck anyway. I'll take all the points I can get. Right? <laughs> it's getting uh, yeah, aggressive in, in here. Um, okay, so next one. When did Greta Thunberg stage her first Fridays for the Future strike alone? Bing, 2017. Not quite. Oh. Matt? That was 2016. It's 2018, yeah, it so 20 I suppose oh. that Luke would... I suppose that Luke would take that one if I was feeling generous, but I guess if I didn't give one for the past one, I'll, I'll do... Oh, half a point for being closest. Um, I've got a tiebreaker question that's a numerical okay. one, so I could okay. do this. Yeah, let's, do, let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah, right, so my tiebreak question is that the world's biggest climate protest, the global climate strike, took place in September 2019, and we actually went to that in London. The final question is, how many people do the organisers think took place across the world on that day? How many people across took the part? World? Yeah, um, so this is closest numerically. Okay, so let's not say yet, we'll go in at the same time. Okay, I've got a number, have you got one, Matt? No, hang on. <laughs> okay, I've got a number. don't okay. know if I've got a number, I'm having a real stab in the dark here. Right. Go with 750,000. That was going to be my guess. No, no way it was. It was. It? I had seven hundred fifty thousand in my head. Um, I won't be annoying and go like seven hundred fifty-one thousand. Um, Nine hundred thousand. Oh, this does sadly make Matt the winner, Luke. Yeah. Um, because it was actually four million. So oh, no you way. guys really underestimated. Um, oh, weird that we had the that same. I don't know where I got set. I had like seven, 75 came straight into my head, so I don't know where that came from. It's the clairvoyant <laughs> vibes, Matt, that's still yeah. with you. <laughs> um, so, Luke, I'm terribly sorry to say that Matt is the winner. I feel like I was hard done by there. That's, yeah, it's a travesty. <laughs> Nor normality resumes. <laughs> Great. Uh, well done, Matt. Um, we'll have a cookie in your honour. Yeah, um, please, please do. Okay, well. Oh, I'm a miso. <laughs> <laughs>
Right, well, there you go. Uh, see you in another 25 years, I suppose, for part two of that quiz. <laughs> Before then, we will be back in a month's time, hopefully rejoined by Matt here in the studio so I can get my own back uh, in a, with another bumper episode. Thanks to all of our special guests featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. And a special thanks, as ever, to our podcast partner, Lloyd's Bank. So uh, until next month, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>